0: Welcome everyone to Seek, Go Create. This is your host, Tim Winders. Got a great conversation today. Before we get any further, I want to remind you of one thing I'd love for you to do, and that is go to seekgocreate.com forward slash book. That is where you can find out all about the novel. Yeah, you heard me right. I've written a novel, kind of surprising, leadership coach and all this stuff. But for some reason, I had a novel in me. And actually, I've got a lot more. This is my debut novel. And depending on when you're going to that site, seekgocreate.com forward slash book, you'll either be able to get a copy of the first chapter for free download. Just get a feel for if you like the writing and the style and the story or if it's after the release of the book, you'll be able to find out about where you can find the book and all about it there. So go check that out and let me know how you like it and read up on it and just have fun with it. I know, I almost said I had fun writing it. I I enjoyed the writing process. I'll just say it that way, it was a lot of work, but go do that for me. And uh, with that, we're gonna dive in today. Today, I have Ann Huntington Sharma as our guest. Anne is the president and a board member of Huntington Learning Center, and that's the nation's leading tutoring and test prep provider. So that'll be some fun conversation. She's a business leader, collector, philanthropist, producer, and creator. Like I said earlier, uh, quite possibly a renaissance woman here. So I'm excited to talk to her and welcome to seat Go Create.
1: Thanks so much, Tim. It's awesome to be here.
0: I'm glad you're here too. And uh, we're gonna have some fun today. Before I get started though, I wanna ask you my question and that is, we see each other digitally or live or whatever and we bump into each other and and we're chit-chatting and I say, Ann, what do you do? What do you typically tell people?
1: Well, over the past 18 months, I've made the impossible possible. So you you gave the bio, I'm the president and board member of Huntington Learning Center. I'm a problem solver. I'm a collaborator, I'm a creator, I'm a daughter, a wife, sister. Uh, So what do I do? I make things happen and I do it with a smile and I make sure that as long as I know what the problem is, we can find a solution. That's what I do.
0: Wow, okay, there's a lot there, Ann, but the first thing that popped in my head is have you always been a make things happen person like f- from the womb like you mentioned you were daughter like oh, did yeah. you come out and like just say all right you know here's what oh, we're yes. going to do really i've got a granddaughter that Not seems sure. that seems to be that way too what was that like as a child and how when did you first become aware that you were problem solver a get things done person
1: well i decided to come out of my mom's womb about 2 months early so I really wanted to get things done uh, from the get-go. So here so, she thought she was so going to have a July baby.
0: So you're too much you're 2 months ahead of most people anyway. You're like you're like in the future there already.
1: You <laughs> there you go. Uh, so uh, from a young age I've always been liking I have always liked to interconnect, to connect and network and see how things can be solved. I think outside the box but understand that there might be a box. So within confines and then pushing those boundaries. And I started that at an early age.
0: <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about, uh, th- one of the things I'm always intrigued about and we discuss here on the show is kind of how people come to be in the roles, positions, Assignment is a word we use a lot here that they are in and sounds like you were a hard charger. I love <laughs> I love the humor of the you' You're two minutes ahead of schedule. I mean, two months ahead of schedule right out of the gate. But um, let's just give we're not going to go deep into it, but let's just give a little bit of Anne growing up, you know, the schooling, the type of education you got before we start getting into the business and all that you're doing right now. Right. Catch us up and tell us uh, Anne, the early years. <laughs>
1: And the early years, wow, it sounds like we're brainstorming for my novel. I, I look forward to reading your novel, Tim. So there's a plug for your novel. Thank you. Uh, and I will definitely be looking at that, that chapter that I can preview. So uh, the early years, And wow, well, you told me we had 60 minutes. So uh, I'll, I'll do the truncated version. The early years, I, I grew up in northern New Jersey outside New York City, uh, and I grew up in a, a loving family. My parents have actually just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, uh, which is is no small feat. So I grew up in a, a wonderful family surrounded uh, by uh, family, friends, went to school locally, and then I went to college in upstate New York and received a liberal arts education. Uh, from there, I started my career in the art industry at an auction house and then started my own art curatorial and production company. And then I had a conversation with those loving parents who actually founded Huntington Learning Center 44 years ago. They're the co-founders. So at work, they're Eileen and Ray, of course, their mom and dad during holidays. And we had a conversation and about eight years or so ago, uh, I came on board at Huntington. So I, I took your question the early years and I fast forward it to today. Uh, That said, who I am, I'm the same person I was uh, when I was born in in May many years ago, uh, smiling, trying to figure it out, lighthearted, genuine, uh, and someone who really wants to make a difference. And that's what I did when I was a child. I was always trying to bring different groups together. And that's what I do as an adult and a professional. I try and collaborate and to create as much as possible.
0: Right, and so so the, the Learning Center, Huntington Learning Center, sounds like a family business. Where, how long has it been in existence? And it sounds like you stepped into it at some point. How long has it been in existence and at what stage was it at when you stepped in?
1: So Huntington was founded in June of 1977. I also joke, though it's true, I'm center number 17. So my parents either opened a center or had a child. I have one older brother. And so uh, I started with Huntington as a, as a student. Uh, so th- that will go back to those early years. So I was a student at Huntington Learning Center, saw firsthand uh, the, the skills that are able to be accomplished, the confidence, the motivation. I also was in quintessential nineties campaigns, marketing campaigns and commercials. Uh, and then and then from there, I uh, went on and did my own thing. It was very important, especially being in a family business, to have a boss who doesn't have the same last name or maiden name. Uh, so it was important for me to have experience outside the family company. And about eight years or so ago, my parents and I sat down and we had a conversation. I came on board first as a consultant to focus on marketing uh, and a rebranding campaign, and then Uh, Very early on, I dove deep and I went through our training program and I I became full time. So that's that's the genesis of how how it started and and where where I am today within Huntington.
0: So I want to I want to go into I want to talk about education and also want to have some discussion about your experience and background in art and philanthropy and collecting. But any time. Um, I've been involved with family businesses. I consult, coach, work with people that have been in, in and around family businesses. There are so many beautiful things about a business where you're working with someone who you also have relation to. But then there's also challenges there. And, and maybe just for the sake of the listener, and I'm not asking you to air out any dirty laundry or anything like that, but could you cover some things and maybe even some tips? Cause I actually love what you said that you had to kind of make your own way before you stepped back in. It wasn't like there's this position for Ann that we're holding and no one else can get it. I, that's kind of my way of wording it. But can you talk a lot of uh, a little bit about the great things, the good things about family business, and then maybe some of the potential challenges and pitfalls from, uh, from sure. what you've observed. I think that'd be valuable to a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. And it's a dynamic industry, family business. And I, I think more and more people need to discuss the challenges slash opportunities, what makes sense, what doesn't. Uh, it's really important to have honest and clear conversations with the family. Now, and in, in my instance, it was my parents or the co-founders. In some family enterprises, businesses, it could be aunts, u- uncles, cousins, grandparents. So there could be multiple generations. So within family business, there are a couple terms. One term is generation one, that's the founders. Generation two is the next generation and generation three, et cetera. So I'm known as generation two. One of the beautiful things, and you use that word, beautiful, Tim, is that there's such alignment in terms of fulfilling the mission and the vision. And within Huntington, whether you're a co-founder, whether you're a Huntington, whether you are a franchisee, we're a franchising company, everyone understands that mission. And our mission is to give every student the best education possible. Now, as a family member and as the daughter of the founders and seeing all the positives and negatives in my 37 years of existence, it hasn't all been smooth sailing. As owners of a, of a company, you have to make sure you make payroll. You have to make sure that you, you pay your bills. You have to make sure that you are doing what is right for your employees, for the customers, etc. So there's a heavy burden. So without having that burden, one might not understand the true, true heaviness of it. That said, when you're aligned and you understand that vision and there's trust, there's integrity, anything is possible. And I think a testament to the success of of how I work with my parents is that we have a very, very strong bond and we trust each other. There is inherent love, and I've told them over the years, As my parents, you are more important to me than as my colleagues. And I would never want to sever that, which has been very difficult. And so I'm not one to air dirty laundry. That said, family businesses might not be right for everyone. That said, you could be a family of business, a business and family where multiple people are doing different things. Just because you're not in the business does not mean you're less or more than the others. It's just a choice. Uh, and in some instances, there, there are some negative connotations and others, there are positives. But at the end of the day, regardless of what the challenge is, the obstacle, the quote unquote, dirty laundry, that integrity, that mission, that alignment is something that is truly, truly priceless. Hmm,
0: that's good. And, you know, there's a word you used, I wrote down the word trust. And I think a lot of people... Um, I don't know if this would be a correct statement or not, but I'll just say it. I think a lot of people probably make this assumption that you can trust family, but I I don't think that's the case. And I think in a, a lot of people that may not admit that they have communication challenges, issues and all that, I think that's where a lot of any type of business can get off track, but definitely mm-hmm. family business. So what, what it sounds to me like, and I... I there's a word, actually, I think it's a commandment. I actually heard Billy Graham say this not long ago, that he was interviewed back in 1969 by Woody Allen, of all things, I was watching this clip. And Woody Allen, in kind of his snarky way, said, what's your favorite commandment? And he says, well, he goes, I like them all, but you know, honor your father and mother is one that's pretty high on my list. And it caused an interesting dialogue. But I, I can tell by the way you speak and your tone that you have a lot of honor for your parents and I'm not going to ask you to agree or disagree. It just, it appears that you honor them. And, and, and I think in a family business that's important, but I think it's important in, in, in life. And, you know, I just me preaching here. I think that's one of the things we've lost in a lot of our, um, a lot of the worlds were in. So were your parents, were they business people or were they educators? I guess I'm, I'm almost wanting to know, you know, going back to the early seventies or the seventies. Let's do it. Yeah. What were they, were they teacher? Both my parents were educators. My dad was an educator. My mom was a, a, a parapro, I guess they would call it now, or teacher's aide. And my dad ended up working for the state department of education in Georgia. So, so I kind of come from an education family. Is your, parents, educators or business people or both?
1: Well, now I, I, they are business people. Uh, back when they started, it, and they started it in, in their 20s, my mother was a high school history teacher. She was tenured. Uh, they, they lived in central New Jersey in a lovely town. Uh, my father at that point was a business analyst at AT&T, which was the largest employer in the United States. He had received his PhD in statistics and had taught at the college level. So both of them were in education and they wanted to solve a problem. And my mom saw in the classroom that so many students were falling behind. They also wanted to take control of their destiny. They wanted to be in business for themselves. They saw the American dream potential, and then they took a leap of faith. Now, My grandmother on my mother's side, of course, both grandparents were depression era grandparents. So when my mother said, well, I'm gonna be quitting my tenured position as a teacher, I think my grandmother was a little bit beside herself. She probably did some more rosaries for my mom than my other aunts and uncle. That said, it worked out well. So uh, all all good there. Uh, I will say though, going back to the other about trust and family, I think the key too, is especially now that the world is so interconnected, having folks like yourself, because you are a coach, you help guide, uh, business folks, uh, there are different forums. So I know you shared that you were in South Dakota right now in 2019, I actually spoke at the family, uh, the Prairie family business mm. convention. And so there are a lot of different, depending on where you are, um, organizations for family businesses, because some of the nuances of family businesses are unique. And then of course, consultants and and dare I say, even therapists can help, uh, help with dynamics to make sure that that compartmentalize, who am I speaking with right now? Is this my mom? Is it the co-founder? Is it a fellow shareholder board member? Is it my boss? So you have to really work through all of those systems which can be very complicated and unlike a non-family member when you leave work at the end of the day they're still your family so you can't unload on them either so it, it does take a lot of discipline respect and a lot of work on yourself and and each other
0: yeah and thanks for thanks for chiming in on that because that is a topic that um, I think is foundational. So thanks for sharing that. Let's, I want to shift a little bit, Anne, and talk about, you, you mentioned earlier that what your, what your parents did was they saw a problem and they, this is business 101, find a problem, solve it. And then, you know, you have people that will either pay for it or want to be involved with it. And so they did that. Let's go big picture for a little while here. And we could kind of talk a lot about things, but let's look at education in general. And and I guess the first thing I would love to do with someone like you is just kind of ask, how do you define education? And I don't even know if that's an answerable question, but it's something I jotted down in my notes when I was just reading your info and doing a little bit of research. I'm going, I'd love to know how how uh, Anne defines education and then we're going to get a little bit deeper into what's going on currently in the world what's happening with how we educate and how we're what we're doing well what we're not doing well but let's education what what is education to you
1: education is fundamental learning education continues after you're out of school education is growth and development education is is a, a specific field it's also learning about yourself internally, and then externally, the world and, and fellow humans, fellow humanity. So education at the core is, is truly the way to make anything possible with education. You can solve problems with education. You can think for yourself with education. You can make your dreams reality with education. The world is bright.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah what was so cool I didn't know quite how to ask that question but you just gave like the highlight reel clip that we'll take from this episode and use that was so good and uh, and so anyway that was excellent and uh, and had so much there so having said all that which sounds extremely hopeful and there's a lot of uh, of light in what you just shared what are some of the challenges that your parents faced way back then? And then we'll probably also talk about what are some challenges with education? We're using that big broad word that uh, we're facing now. And you could either take either one. We can go back to that. From my perspective, we're probably dealing with the same challenges, but uh, either or, whichever one you wanna take and discuss.
1: Sure, so let me step back for a moment. Within Huntington Learning Center, we're K through 12 tutoring and test prep. And what that means is we have test prep programs, which are SAT, ACT state tests, specific tests, like an AP exam, and then tutoring its learning center, which is specific skills. So think verbal, think uh, reading, writing, phonics uh, at a fundamental level, math, uh, study skills. So within Huntington, the challenges that my parents saw and their colleagues in the seventies saw 44 years ago are the same as they are today. The, the modes in which it's delivered may be different. Now, in the beginning, it was carbon paper. No, we're not old enough to have a stone and chisel, but we did have carbon paper. Today, we use Chromebooks. Who knows what we'll be using in 40 years. That said, students were missing fundamental skills. They were missing reading. They were missing reading comprehension, phonics they were missing those those core those core skills that then you need to build upon. So how did that happen? Well, teachers are excellent people. They want to help each student. That said, the classroom may have 15, 20, 25, 30 plus students in the classroom and the teacher has to teach a certain curricula throughout the year and has to move on. Now, there's an individual student in that classroom. And let's say that student's dog passed away and the student was really sad for a certain concept in the classroom and that student turned off. That student lost that concept. Now, maybe that student is very charismatic and could really overcome it in certain ways, but at some point that concept that was lost will catch up to that student. And that's where Huntington comes in. What we do is we start with an academic evaluation which is a battery of tests it's a few hours in length and we pinpoint exactly where the student is functioning we pinpoint the strengths and weaknesses and we build on those strengths and we really really build on those weaknesses so that student when he or she comes to huntington may actually be two grade levels behind now because we're working at the student's pace we can make sure that we deliver the instruction as the student needs it. So we don't have to meet a deadline. We have to make sure that the student understands it. So then we build those skills, which then in turn builds confidence and motivation. So that's most of our students are, are that. That said, because we're individualized, we help a lot of students who are enriched. So a student who's at grade level, who's bored in the classroom, Again, the teacher has to teach to the the middle, right? Because you're gonna have some who are like, I understand this and some who are completely confused for different reasons. Uh, And so that enriched student, we can help and move them from algebra to geometry, to to calculus and at that student's pace. So that's the really neat part about what we do. So that challenge that we see is the, the gaps in skills and within a, a short period of time, we can build and we can shorten those gaps and we can fill in those gaps to make them then successful in and out of the classroom.
0: Yeah, it's been w- one of the thoughts that came to my mind as you were talking about it, Ann, was it's been a long time since I've been in elementary school. I'll just go ahead and say that. But <laughs> I I was blessed to come from a pretty solid, not perfect but solid family environment you know i I got a breakfast before I came to school you know and didn't have chaos when I got home and different things like that which all that plays into it like you you brought up the example of you know a child's dog passing away or just something that sets them back i i I and one of the things I recall and I don't think I was the smartest guy around but I seem to always be able to kind of stay in the upper range which i think you just automatically put yourself in a position to keep going along and succeeding well if you can kind of be in in a public school environment maybe the upper x percentile but i i, I recall and i've got actually some faces that are coming to my mind from 50 almost 50 years ago of people that just got a little bit behind early on in the process first second third fourth grade and just never seemed to catch up. And, and I don't think these people were not smart or anything like that. It was just maybe circumstances or something like that. And I love what you said and, you know, being one, I mean, I'm one that can ask a lot of questions and I, I don't want any of my questions to be critical of teachers or anything like that. I'm, I might at times question the system because I think the big, the system that we've got of government education, we can always look to improve upon. But the goal of it is to try to make education available to everyone. But what, what is something that can be done maybe at the macro level? I know we're looking at micro and you said that you do individual things for students. But what can be done at the macro level, big picture, to keep... Sally or Joe in first, second, third, fourth grade from just getting a little bit behind, and then that, that just that gap just keeps growing year after year after year. I mean, got any ideas like that? If you could solve this, this would be pretty, pretty big deal, I guess. What do you I think?
1: I'd get a Nobel Prize. You
0: would, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, so we're we might be just casting a big net of like this would be kind of, and you know, if everyone can kind of step into one of y'all's facilities, that would be great. But like you said, teachers have 20, 25, sometimes more in the classroom, and they have to try to manage all of them, keep them moving along. So any thoughts, any thoughts on solutions, big picture solutions?
1: Well, big picture solutions within education have to go down to that individual student. Mm. So we can look above the canopy, the macro level, and we can look at the, the framework of it and look at. Uh, different testing, uh, testing um, opportunities—be it an SAT, an ACT, a park test—all uh, the different tests that are out there. So we can look for trends. That said, it has to go back to that student, uh, and it has to go back to building that that self-esteem, that confidence. Because quite frankly, and we see this every day, where a student won't make eye contact, a student has never had a teacher or maybe anyone ever compliment them or say, great, hard work, good job. Uh, and then all of a sudden that student is is seeing, wow, maybe I can do this. Maybe I'm not dumb. Uh, so, you know, yesterday I was in a meeting and a franchisee said, you know, perception is really my reality. And I thought that was such a great quote. And I know it's a quote that's used uh, many times over. But it is true it's what we perceive sometimes does become our reality so at that macro level in terms of education again i think the 60 minutes i think we're going to need way more time tim for that Uh, but it it really goes to okay is this the problem we want to solve so the education issue let's say that student who has no self-esteem who has fallen through the cracks who um years ago we called it a failure chain model. Uh, that was in the 90s. It was a, a big campaign. We saw that the customers thought that was a little too aggressive. So we've softened over the years. That said students do struggle. Maybe we don't call it failing anymore in these these in the in this day and age. That said students do fall behind. That said just because that student falls behind doesn't mean that students always going to be behind. So as you were looking at the 50 year student heads uh, coming up in in your mind, you know, where are they today? Hopefully they were able to to move forward and all that. So the first, the problem that has to be solved in your question would be, well, at the macro level, how do we help these students? And then what we have to do is we have to get really smart people in a room uh, some people who are in the, street, in the industry and I always like to bring people who aren't in the industry because they might think differently uh, and they, they might be able to, again, out of the box type of analysis and then uh, problem solve and say, okay, let's brainstorm. How can we fix this? How do we test it? And then you roll it out. Um, the landscape within education isn't as simple or binary as, as as a problem could be solved uh, that, that simply. That said, I think that that's the, the key with public-private partnerships. And within Huntington, uh, we work with districts, we work at the state level, the federal level, and with the local uh, parent, of course, to help the student and help many students. As My goal would be to have as many Huntingtons as possible uh, because that means that we can help more students. Education is critical to the future And the more folks can think and can uh, read and have critical thinking and be able to make decisions for themselves, uh, the better we'll be. Yeah,
0: and in answer to sort of the question you posed, sometimes we don't know how people end up, you know, it's like, I don't know the face of the classmate that was struggling to read out loud in third grade and then Shortly thereafter, they were moved to another class, and sometimes we don't know. The good thing is, is that people can reinvent themselves, and you know, I've I know story after story of people that, you know, when I move to the middle school or when I move to high school, I'm changing, I'm doing something different, or college or beyond. So, so that's good. You know, one of the things we do here is we talk about redefining success. That's kind of a big underlying theme to all that we do. And sometimes, and it's with the guest, we ask about some event or something that occurred. And in a while, I'm going to ask how your business and organization has dealt with the world that we've seen since early 2020, and all that's gone on there, because I'm sure it's had an impact, it's had an impact on everyone. But I actually had that redefined success pop into my head when we were talking about the service that you provide to children. Because I I think that in overall, big picture, public education has a goal to provide an education to everyone. And I think there's great merit in that. Uh, They do the best that they can most of the time. But to provide an education for everyone is almost, (laughs) I don't want to say it's a losing battle. It's a very difficult thing to do because we're talking about a bunch of individuals it seems as if one of the things your organization does is steps in and helps people redefine success, because they've been kind of defined. And I don't, you notice, I don't even like to use the word failure, because, because sometimes it's an opportunity for someone to maybe take the tutoring and move out, uh, not move out, but complement what's going on with that education system. So anyway. Do I have that right? I mean, am I thinking right on that? Is it, uh, am, yes. or I'm just, am I just trying to weave in the theme of the show here?
1: <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. So I'm so honored to be on your show because that's what we do every single day. We we redefine success. We make miracles happen, and we make sure that the student learns as the student needs to learn. There are many different ways to learn. Uh, the federal law. There's something called a free appropriate. Public education every student K through 12 student is entitled to that free appropriate public education and so within that uh, that that's very that's good it's appropriate it's it's what needs to happen that said in the classroom like we've been talking about there are lots of students so just because your report card or now the portal that your schools in says one thing you are not a C or a B or some schools don't use grades anymore. So however they define it in their local area, you are the person. So you have to find what is right for you. Uh, and so sometimes it, it means stepping back and saying, okay, let me try it a different way. Now, you can't do that, let's say, if you're a brain surgeon or a, a heart surgeon, uh, but in, in many instances, you can, you can think of it a little bit differently. So we do redefine success and we do that with a very formulated way. We're prescriptive and diagnostic. And we start as I shared earlier with that evaluation. So then we create a customized learning plan for the student and we can then share with the family, this is how many hours it's going to take to get your student to grade level or beyond, whatever the goal of the student is. So let me just ground that for a moment so in 50 hours of tutoring so that's what a little more than a work week our students on average will go up over 2.1 2.2 grade levels in reading and math Hmm. so that means in a little more more than a work week we can move a child up over two grade levels that's on the tutoring side on the test prep side on average our students go up 5.4 points on the act and 229 points on the sat which are 2019 students on average received $71,000 worth of scholarship opportunities on average. In aggregate, it was like 187 million. So we truly are redefining success and we are changing the trajectory of that student in, in school and then out of school because what they might not have thought they could accomplish because of limiting beliefs or mindset, now all of a sudden they can and maybe they can accomplish more Many of our students who have their REACH schools, and for those who don't have students who are kids who are going to college, that's a school that is beyond what you think you can get to. Many of our students, those REACH schools become safety schools, which mm-hmm. is just tremendous. And it's because we build those skills, confidence, and motivation. It's not cookie cutter. It's all individualized for the student. So. I think it's, you didn't weave it in. This is perfect. This is what we do every single day.
0: So what's interesting, something just came to mind as we were talking here is that, you know, you've got a, you've got multi, multi-facets to what you're dealing with. You, you obviously, we've already discussed the family business and the, and, and the, the headquarters or the, 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 the. The operation that you have, but you also are franchise, and then you also have the students that we just discussed. Uh, I, I think, especially for our audience there, there's probably people that are intrigued by, by the, um, by the aspect of what we do for students or what you do for students. But let's talk briefly about the model, which is the franchise model. First of all, I, I, I had a conversation, I don't know when it's gonna air, but it was about a month or so back with me on, uh, on the show with someone who kind of helps with franchises and helps people set them up. But talk about what the decision process was like. And I'm guessing they made the decision to do franchise model prior to eight years ago when you joined the company. But what was part of that decision for expansion and growth related to franchising. And then talk a little bit about what that person needs to be like that would want to have a franchise for Huntington.
1: Great question. So between 1977, when Eileen and Ray Huntington, my parents founded Huntington Learning Center to 1985, they grew from one center to 18 centers in New Jersey, Philadelphia, New York, so that that corridor, that uh, New York metro area. After they had opened 18 centers and they had two kids, uh, they said, we have a model, we have systems, we have procedures, it works and we need to scale. And how do we scale? And so they thought franchising was a great option. So we began franchising in 1985, so 36 years ago. And it's been fantastic. Of course, the great recession in 08, 09 affected us just as it did everyone else in the world. Uh, that said, uh, Huntington's a great model to franchise because within franchising, the slogan is, you're in business for yourself, but not by yourself. So our franchisees in the local their local markets can make an impact. They can really fulfill our mission, which I shared earlier, which is to give every student the best education and our vision, which is world-class student results and franchisee profitability. So we started franchising in 1985, and we see it as a a great opportunity to help more students across the country, to help individuals come in and and be in business for themselves, that entrepreneurial spirit, but to limit their risk a bit uh, because they're with a, a proven system. And that individual could be from a lot of different areas in life the most fundamental key, that individual needs to like kids. We deal with children. Of course, there are certain qualifications from a financial standpoint and and, uh, and work standpoint, and uh, they need to be a U.S. citizen, and there's some other stuff. And we have a great team, a great franchise development team, that helps guide the individual along the way. And, and also, we work with a lot of different franchise brokers as well mm. so the individual needs to like kids uh, want to make a positive impact in their community and want to open a business we are we are a business which means you have to understand marketing you have to understand profit and loss you have to understand budget you have to understand operations uh, and we help with all of that we have tremendous support uh, so so that that's it in a nutshell Tim.
0: Yeah. And one of the things you brought up and one of the things we attempt to do here is be extremely transparent about the great times and then also help learn about what goes on when times are tougher. You brought up that, you know, there was some challenges during the whatever we call the 2008. Uh, I've been very candid about what all happened with our companies and businesses. We usually discuss it. And whatever whatever you're comfortable sharing, I would love to hear. Uh, I mean, listen, you got franchise, you got locations all over the over the businesses are dependent upon, uh, you know, people being paid and all that. I'm sure a lot of the independent franchisees took a hit, and some probably folded and all. But can you give maybe a little bit more of what what you saw and what you learned through that time? Because sure. I know many people many people took quite the beating and haven't recovered, but many people use that. And for me, it was five, six, eight years in the making that it has made me better today than I was during that time. So maybe even frame it that way. What did you guys learn? What was the beating that you maybe took and, and what is it doing to help you now, especially since we've just recently gone through another interesting challenge that we'll talk about shortly?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, so there were a lot of lessons learned from that now remember at that point we had already gone through the gas crisis students still came to huntington even though you know you could only get gas on certain days or drive on certain days so we had been through uh different different crises the great recession one of the trends we saw the franchisees who did close their doors for the most part were new franchisees who didn't have a full belief in in what they were doing because they were so new. You have to see the results in your center. And with that, it's also that new franchisee who may not have had the roots in the community, i.e. the relationships with the schools, the relationships with the teachers, the relationships with fellow business owners. So you need to cultivate that network. So the lessons learned were uh, were very, very uh, deep and what we saw was how do we move as many fixed costs over to variable costs? So the main fixed cost in our situation is rent, right? So you have to pay your rent. So before the, the recession, the Great Recession, our square footage was 2,500 square feet, give or take. Uh, some were more, some were a bit less. So what we did was we said, how, 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 what is, the, the least amount of space you need to run a Huntington Learning Center and as the franchisor we opened a, a few locations with smaller square footage so now, on average, our, our square footage is about 1400 square feet. For anyone who's interested in all this stuff there's something called a franchise disclosure document all this stuff's in there item 19 shows system averages here it's a it's a big, big uh, document so I it's not light reading but. Go to item 19, and it goes into its so own average. Our our square footage is 1,400 square feet, so that drastically changed that fixed cost. In addition, we changed some of the staffing models. So if you're a new center, guess what? You have no children unless unless you you bring your kids into Huntington. So we we created a staffing model that you can dial up staff so instead of having full-time staff at first when you have zero children how do you make it part-time and then depending on how many students you have in the center then you either dial it up or dial it down and then once you get to a critical point then you know you need to bring on more staff so that was moving to fixed cost to variable cost a pardon. Well, the rent's not variable, but it moved mm-hmm. it down the fix and then moved that fix of the staffing to variable. So those are two examples of what we learned through the Great Recession.
0: Yeah, that's good. All right. So with those two items, let's fast forward to, uh, you know, early 2020 and, and mm-hmm. an event that I don't think, I don't think any of us saw coming. What preparation that you go through in 08 9 10 11 was that helpful were those adjustments helpful do you think they made a difference when all of a sudden we were in this unique time that was a little bit different we'll talk about maybe some other impacts but uh, did that help because i i know it helped me to go through what Mm -hmm. we did in 08 because not that i was prepared but we were in much better position what was it like for huntington
1: So I I wouldn't think that they're parallel in that. So just a little bit background. I became president in October of 2019. So Mm. I was a a fresh president of Huntington Learning Center. Yay! The world world changed overnight in March 2020. Uh, And my parents were down in Florida. They were hanging out. So I was like, okay, what do we do? So, uh, we rolled up our sleeves and, and of course you learn from everything that happens in the past that said, we, we were prior to March, 2020, we were solely in person, right? Mm -hmm. So that means our students had to go to a Huntington learning center. We didn't offer online tutoring. So that was the main problem we had to solve immediately, which we did. And I'm very proud of the team and, and how we accomplished it. Uh, so we started planning in mid-February, when it started to rumble. Uh, and I started having daily meetings with my management team every day at 5 o'clock. And as as the days got a little bit more doom and gloom, I would ask, what's your redundancy plan? Um, who knows this? Who's cross trained? Uh, how do we accomplish this? How do we accomplish that? Then it became more oh gosh, you know, there are going to be mandates in certain states that are going to close our doors. We need uh, an online option ASAP. It, it has to work. Uh, so it, it was really triage who was 24 uh, 7, uh, basically camped out at our main office until. The governor told us we couldn't be there. I had a skeleton crew with me, not camped out all night long. But uh, I had a skeleton crew until the day the governor said, you can't be in the office anymore. And we were ready. We, we were like, we're going to do this. If there are blips, we're going to figure it out. And that's one of the, the great things about franchising. We have a very strong franchise network. And I was on the phone with franchisees all day long. Now we have franchisees in Seattle, for example, and that's those cases happened before they moved more towards the East coast. So that gave us a bit of a runway because we were problem solving with those franchisees and we were able to deliver an online solution. We were able to put our curricula that for the most part is pen and paper, pencil and paper we were able to put that online is it perfect no in terms of what it looks like does it work yes and the results we're seeing with students and uh where we're starting to release this is absolutely tremendous we're seeing that online students and hybrid students so a student who attends in person and online is actually outperforming a student who attends in in center and i can explain our theory on that and and the findings in a moment so 2020 march 2020 was extremely different from uh the great recession and it was because it was a a complete transformation of our business model uh with the, the great recession we changed critical components of the business model meaning the staffing and the square footage that said we 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 did well because families not well, but we survived, I should say. We survived in 08, 09 because families understood the investment of education and saw the results. And the centers that were in communities that had those roots were able to, to um, move forward. With the pandemic, uh, it was a different beast. It was one where we had to really think outside the box and and completely revolutionize our business model overnight in terms of our offerings, which we did. So should the door physically close, a student could continue virtually. And it was a lot of sleepless nights. It was a lot of 2 a.m. calls with attorneys. It was daily emails I sent to the entire system of 4,000 plus people, um, giving them real-time update in terms of what we're doing. It's ch- It was changing our weekly calls to be COVID focus calls and go through lessons learned it was meeting with our different councils and boards to make sure we were aligned and if we weren't aligned how do we get aligned what do we have to do Um, franchising's all about uh different documents so we didn't have online in our franchise agreement so we had to create an amendment to the agreement really fast and so we work together, and I think we were able to get stronger uh, than ever before because we have a really strong network of people and a really strong network of a community.
0: What, how many states or I guess states might be the best? Are you yeah. all primarily U.S.-based? Are you all U.S.-based?
1: At the moment, we're U.S.-based, okay. uh, and we're in 42 states. We have roughly 300 locations.
0: Wow, so 300 locations in 42 states and mm-hmm. and one of the things that a lot of us observed with business and I was coaching and working with people all over is that i don't want to say the rules were different totally in different places but the rules were different in different places you know there were some places that were going on full shutdown some places that mm-hmm. were i'll not to be inflammatory they were ignoring anyway it was just a wide spectrum there did you put some things in place, and obviously these are, in, these are franchises, but did you have to put some policies in place at the corporate level that were adhered to for legal reasons, for safety and all of that, that they had to adhere to? Or did you allow people to do things based on the local uh, issues? What, what Talk about that challenge, because that seems to be fairly difficult to maneuver.
1: Yes. Well, in the early days of the pandemic, uh, my attorney was on speed dial because we wanted to make sure we did what was right. Mm -hmm. And you are right. Franchises, they're, they're independently owned and operated. Mm -hmm. So we, from day one, even before in February, when we were starting to, I want to say role play, if we have to go remote, if we have to do this, if all that stuff, um, we really looked at the guidance of the CDC, of the local government. Now, our main office is in New Jersey. New Jersey is very different than our centers in Florida. It's just a different governor type. Um, And so we had to be aware of that. So every single correspondence I wrote, every time I spoke, colleagues spoke, it was make sure you're adhering to your local uh guidelines and to the cdc guidelines things changed rapidly at first it was three feet then it was six feet then of course our marketing department had to come out with marketing so that families knew Uh, we had to totally change our website and all of our collateral because all of a sudden we were offering online and i didn't even get into the other programs we created last year because we saw a need and we rolled out a whole host of different programs to help students families and we even created a b2b product um so uh it was really important that the local center in in their local community followed those guidelines things were changing
0: yeah and you know one of the things i kind of have this mind i'm an engineer by training but then i could be fairly optimistic sometimes almost pollyanna-ish optimistic But early on in the pandemic i mean i was watching clients lose massive amounts of revenue we were in survival mode i think you used the term triage at one point to discuss to describe what went but went on back in 08 but I, i must admit i've been extremely impressed with how so many people have come through uh i could say in a lot of ways but specifically business and can you I mean, you mentioned some already, but but what's really impressed you? Can you think of, a, a, you know, one of your franchise owners that did something that was so unique and creative? Y'all went, wow, or anything like that. What's what's impressed you? You know, you're a problem solver. And this was like a problem that. Well, first of all, you I don't want to say you were in your element, but it sounds like you jumped in and had it. But what impressed you throughout all of this process the last year and a half?
1: What impressed me is that we not only survived we're thriving today our Mm -hmm. revenue numbers are at or exceeding 2019 so that that's what has impressed me it's also impressed me that we as a team we've worked together so so well Uh, uh, there were some silver linings we saw some some things that we thought wait what does that mean so by being remote, there's extreme transparency in terms of what you're doing, what you're not doing. So we were also able to go in and and fix a lot of things that, well, they they were, they weren't right at that moment. So it also gave us an opportunity to, um, change our org chart, if you will. Uh, so in terms of what's impressed, I'm really impressed with the whole network, how we came together. Now I'm not picturing it as rainbows and unicorns because it it sure was not that. Uh, that said, uh, we have come together and, and we're stronger for it. Triage was definitely 2020 and talking, we were just talking about revenues and everything. My uh, CFO who actually retired after 24 years earlier this year, uh, he, he and I and, and the, the executive team, so my parents, we were looking at models, uh, financial models of what happens if there's zero revenue, what happens if there's 50%. So we were, it was, it was a very eye-opening um, moment, one where you have to also realize it's not about me, it's about not meaning and, but me, the person, it's about what is best for the company. And in my role, uh, I feel that it's important to protect and grow the brand. And sometimes some of the decisions that have to be made are extremely tough uh, and I don't take it lightly. There were a lot of sleepless nights in terms of, of, of certain actions I had to take as president and, and, and I, <laughs> it doesn't go lightly. Uh, so with that, I'm very impressed in terms of how we came together and how we're, we're not only surviving today, we're thriving. And we have been able to help so many students in such a time of uncertainty uh, that, that they knew that they could rely on Huntington. So we also created more webinars, which are free to the public uh, on topics that were about, um, about mental health. That They were about how do you work with students at home who may have ADHD. Uh, they were about uh, dealing with different falling behind, with mindset, with, So we partnered with different psychologists, with different organizations, to really educate the audience, which was excellent. And then you also asked about about different franchisees. Well, within franchising, it's not so much creative, because you want the franchisee to follow the system. That said, really great ideas come from the field. And there's one idea that came from a a West Coast uh, franchisee who is a mom, and she called me up and said, I really don't want to be uh, just teaching my son every single day, I wanna be the mom. Here's what I'm thinking. What about some sort of a academic teacher coach who can help with organizational skills? And we created an academic coach program, which is two 30-minute check-ins with a tutor. Uh, And a lot of folks who have layered that on their actual program to help with executive functioning skills organizational skills. What assignments do you have this week? Are you ready for the test? So she she had a problem. She said, I want to be mom. And I said, okay, how how do we make you mom? (laughs) And and we we talked and we made her mom.
0: (laughs) That was that's a great success story, especially in light of all that all that went on. Yeah, it was interesting you were talking about uh, you know strategy and talking about the the financial models. I used to, definitely because of my background from 08, when I worked with a a leadership team or executive leadership team, we would go through strategic uh, exercises where we would have discussions about what happens if revenue drops by 10%, by 20%, by 30%. Uh, and, And we would do this, you know, I did this in 2015, 16, 17 Never in my wildest thinking that I would need to with a client discuss, okay, let's talk about what happens if revenue goes to zero and we're entirely shut down for 60 days? What do we do then? We never once thought about that. Um, And there's so many things I'd love to ask, but you are now president of a business that's been in existence for approaching 50 years, 45 plus years if I'm doing the math right, maybe I need math help, I don't know, Uh, but uh, you know, 40 plus years, you obviously have 42 states, 300 plus organization, they're probably growing, you've got marketing, you've got all these things, and I I think kind of one of my big last questions before we begin uh, winding down a little bit is, what's the biggest challenge that Anne faces in her role as leader, president, uh, whatever else you wanna add to that. What's the biggest challenge you face? And if you're able to share, your problem solver, so you probably have an answer to it. If you're able to share how you address it and deal with it, what would that be? Because you're, you're in quite the leadership role that I think some of us can learn from.
1: Thank you. Uh, the biggest challenge I have is time. Hmm. We have so much we have to accomplish and there just isn't enough time. I know that's that age old saying, But it's true, that is the biggest challenge. The biggest challenge is time. And so how you solve that is prioritization. What is the most important? Who's responsible for it? So that then becomes delegation. And over the past years, I've I've really learned how to delegate, how to rely on team members, uh, have accountability, trust but verify, and all that. So my biggest challenge is, is time. Um, in terms of if I was to add a, another challenge it's also how can we help more students? How can we grow more so again, my job is to protect and grow the brand so there has to be integrity there has to make sure that it's the huntington way, uh, but also how do we grow it that that takes time too so uh, time is the biggest challenge
0: yeah I, I think I think that would probably be common for a lot of people and one observation: I think a lot of us have had. Maybe we've gained clarity in the last few years with all that's gone on, on what is the highest priorities versus what might have been just other stuff that we padded in. So, anyway, that's right. good. You know, one of the things I noticed, and I want to ask this before we wind down, and I know there's so many other things we can discuss, but
1: <laughs> need more time, Tim.
0: Yeah, yeah. Maybe we all need more time, but we also have a have a limit here. You, you have quite a background in art and philanthropy. Mm-hmm. i mentioned you're a curator and founder. Could you, could you briefly talk about that? And then I've got one final question related to that uh, before we, sure. before we wrap up. So talk about your art background.
1: Sure. So I studied art history. I, I worked in, in the art industry while I was in school. And then after school, I've always been an art lover, if you will. Uh, and even when I was younger, I was collecting postcards, precious moments. I just loved collecting and, and loved putting things together. So art is is a passion of mine. One of the great um, aspects of art is you can change your roles within it. So yes, I was day to day and early in my career. And then as I moved into Huntington, I made that not day to day but more as a patron philanthropist collector so i've been able to keep that passion uh, and keep uh, keep it in sync with what's going on within the art industry Uh, i focus on contemporary art uh, which means it's anything from 1959 to today and all different types of mediums from nfts to design work to paintings to digital and everything in between Uh, so Art is is part of who I am. I don't think I could live without art. uh, And that's going to have to be a full-on topic for another day. (laughs) I'm active in uh, many different organizations, including the Guggenheim. I'm a co-chair of their Young Collectors Council. And I've graduated, unfortunately slash fortunately, into the International Directors Council. uh, And um, I'm I'm very, very uh, honored to be part of that. Guggenheim family. Uh, And so I have fantastic relations with lots of artists, curators, writers uh, and folks who share the passion that I have for art.
0: Yeah, that that's cool. There's one thing you brought up that I can't just leave this. Uh, You brought up NFTs and the digital space that's going on. We had an interview recently, and we've got another interview coming up with people that are, you know, very heavy into that space. Do you think that all that's going on with NFTs, and we're not going to explain it for those of you that may not know what it is, (laughs) look it up, but is it going to be help to the individual artist? Is this something that's going to finally put a lot of artists that we've used the starving artist term, is it finally going to put them in a position where maybe they can not be starving artists. What's your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it all depends on what platform the artist use to create the NFT and how it's structured. I think it's great to be able to share within it. In uh, Great Britain, they do have tax and they do when you're uh, selling certain art that it has to go back to the artist. So the model has actually happened with more tangible objects versus an NFT. I think NFTs have propelled us and have created tough conversations within within the art industry and beyond. NFTs will move into different mediums, so they already have, but they will and probably at a fast pace. NFTs also make sure in terms of fraud, um, counterfeit, it helps in terms of the integrity, uh, potentially some uh, shady stuff that, that could have happened. NFTs make it extremely transparent as to who has it where it is, Uh, so that documentation is strong. I see NFTs as as part of the canon, not the full canon, and I think it it will continue to complement the different mediums that artists work in. Uh, A plug for, I'm an associate producer on a film that is premiering this coming weekend Mm. at the Hampton Film Festival called The Art of Making It. And it, it doesn't go deep into NFTs, but it does talk about Uh, the need for dialogue between different uh, members within the art industry, which is so important and critical for, and you used it, that starving artist, that artist who really is just painting to painting type of of, of work. Uh, So what makes one artist uh, successful, the other one not? And it's similar with NFTs, what makes one NFT successful, one not? So NFTs will help in terms of transparency It's a new medium.
0: Yeah, it's new and exciting and uncharted and all Mm -hmm. that. Our son's a photographer. I think he's recently minted a few NFTs. And so he's experimenting in that and all that. How are the final question? Then we're going to do a quick wrap. Um, How are you, you say you've got a passion for art and education? How are those two related and how are they different?
1: Well, they are completely related. That said, Huntington Learning Center is very specific in what we do, and I'm not going to change that business model. You can learn so much through art, be it with uh, different types of therapies, be it with different learning disabilities, be it with creativity. So they are extremely complement complementary and so essential art education is is critical uh, for learning and for really creating that imagination for the, the young learner and then the older learner. Uh, so they, they are connected um, uh, fundamentally. Uh, so I don't see them as different.
0: Excellent. And what a, what a great conversation we've had. Let's just say that someone's listening in and they want to get more information. I guess there's a, a, a range of people here. They, they might be interested in finding out if there's a Huntington facility near them to check, For their children or Mm -hmm. we also have a lot of business owners and you know uh, entrepreneurs and all listening in they may have interest in the business opportunity that is Huntington or I guess where would you like people to go if they would like to connect with you or find out more or, or or something like that where do you want to send them we'll include it in the notes also but just let us know
1: awesome so you can go to Huntingtonhelps.com. That's our consumer website. So if your child is struggling, if your child is enriched and wants more tutoring or test prep, go to Huntingtonhelps.com. Huntingtonfranchise.com is for franchise opportunities. So if you're looking to go into business uh, and to have that entrepreneurial spirit, definitely check out Huntingtonfranchise.com. You can call 1-800-CAN-LEARN and we'll make sure that we get you to the right place. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Anne Huntington Sharma, and uh, we'll, we'll make sure that, that we connect.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Anne. I gave you a little warning for this, but my final question for you, we're seek, mm-hmm. go create. I'm going to force you to pick one word that uh, ah. that you put above the other two. So seek, go or create, which word you're going to pick and why? And that's our last question.
1: I feel like you could answer this for me because I've said the word many times and based off of our conversation, create hands down, no question, create, because that's how you, you cause something to exist, that how, how you produce something, that's how you establish something. And once you cause something to exist, once you establish, produce, you can build anything and anything truly is possible that creates creativity, that creates imagination that creates new business models and frames of
0: thinking. So create. Excellent. Thank you, Ann. What a great conversation. I know that you've enjoyed this if you've been listening in. So please share, rate, give comments on the platform that you're listening in or watching on. We love to hear from that. If it's something that we need to get back in touch with Ann, we'll definitely do that too and bring her into the fold. But thank you so much for listening. Again, share this. And until next time, new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.